You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites. And it's brought to you by the NRMA, who are leading the charge in helping Australians transition to electric vehicles. By rolling out Australia's largest regional fast charging network, along with advocacy and education, the NRMA is making the electric transition more accessible for more people. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of The Driven, as well as its sister sites, uh, Renew Economy and One Step Off The Grid. And this is second in a series sponsored by NRMA. And today we have a fantastic guest, Tony Sieber from Stanford University. He's a technologist and a futurist. We had him in one of the very first Driven podcasts a couple of years ago. And he is a fascinating man because he has succeeded in quite accurately predicting the future when other people have said it is impossible. And I'm thinking particularly about solar and also the rollout initially of EVs. Today, uh, Daniel Bleakley, the lead reporter, from The Driven is um, has interviewed Tony Sieber from Stanford University and um, we'll have a listen to that first and then we'll come back with Daniel, discuss that, uh, that interview and also talk about some of the other news of the week in part two. So let's start off with part one, the interview between Daniel Bleakley and Tony Sieber from Stanford University. So today we have uh, Tony Sieber on The Driven podcast and I've been following uh, Tony Sieber's work for many years now. Uh, Tony's, Tony covers a lot of um, research on technology transformations and, um, and S-curves, so technology S-curves and, and the way that technology, um, technology develops over time and, and how that, that changes our, our society. So it's a real privilege to have you on the podcast today, Tony. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. Thanks very much. Um, so, yeah, we're obviously with The Driven, we're an EV news site. So I know that your research covers a lot of different technologies, um, but we'd really love to, to focus on, on the electric vehicle side of things. Um, so, yeah, first of all, I, w- I wanted to ask about your, um, your research on um, technology S-curves. So you say technology cost curves are like gravity. What are, what are some other examples of of plummeting plummeting cost curves that we've seen over the over the recent years yeah so back in 2010 i predicted that solar pv would fall by 80 to 90 percent over the following decade um and you know i got the usual pushback and whatever um the cost of pv uh i mean actually dropped by 82% 82% boom, right? Um, genius, not really. I mean, uh, pretty much every technology or every new technology has a predictable cost curve. That means that um, every year it improves by a certain amount. It improves both cost and capabilities by a certain amount. Um, so I follow a number of them, batteries, electric vehicles, solar PV, wind, precision biology, sensors, communication, computing, robotics, 3D printing, space technology. All of these technologies have a predictable cost curve. So if you want to know what's going to happen, as far as the technology itself, 
um, in 10 years, uh, you could not do better than to look at the cost curves. Um, now, the, the, here's the caveat. Like gravity doesn't mean that it's going to be a perfectly predictable path on a month-to-month -month basis. Over the years, yes. Um, you know, think of a technology snowball effect. There will be bumps along the way, uh, but there you know, may also be acceleration. Uh, but over time, they usually fall back to a predictable path. Mm. Yeah, and um, I, I was I was uh, listening to one of your YouTubes and, and you mentioned that back in 2014, you actually predicted that battery costs would drop from around $500 per kilowatt hour to just $100 per kilowatt hour by 2023. Now, that, that seems to have played out. Um, so what was the kind of response that you were getting from people at the time when you were, when you were making those kind of predictions? <laughs> uh, the usual response, not going to happen. That's insane. You're too optimistic. The market's not there. And, you know, there's also, you know, there's not enough lithium. There's not enough minerals. Um, and, of course, when all else fails, the personal attacks. Um, but... I mean, you know, we don't think, we humans don't think exponentially. We, are, we usually don't think in terms of compounding uh, exponential improvements of technology. Um, but, you know, we, I have studied disruptions throughout history. Um, and pretty much every time that uh, a new disruption comes along, uh, the pushback is pretty much the same. Um, not gonna happen. Blah blah. Yeah, blah. and and you um you actually talk about the the technology disruption of the automobile a hundred years ago from from when the world moved from uh, transporting themselves and their and and their products through using horses to the automobile. Can you tell us how that played out? How long it took and kind of the shape of the curve. So essentially, every disruption happens along the following way. We live in an equilibrium. Um, that means whatever system, horse transportation, um, you know, or food or uh, energy and so on, um, has been in equilibrium for a while, say 100 years, 1,000 years, and so on and so forth. But um, at the same time, we always have technologies that are improving in cost and capabilities um, along the way. So. A hundred plus years ago, those technologies would have been rubber tires, would have been steel, would have been the internal combustion engine, and so on, right? At some point, um, those technologies converge, and the big disruptions happen because of a technology convergence. So you, call was, those, uh, you call those phase shifts, yeah? That's right, phase change disruption, and that's what the car was. Um, versus the horse. And when you look at the data from, you know, 1900, 1905, you see essentially that it was a world of essentially all horses. And you see one car here, one car there. It would have been really, really unbelievable um, after thousands of years of horses being our main means of transportation to say that within 15 years, cars would disrupt the horse. But in fact, it did happen. It did happen in some places like New York within 13 years. Um, in all of America, the disruption from essentially nil to about 95% penetration of 
um, car miles happened within about 20 years. But here's the kicker. Um, from about 10% to about 80 or 90%, which is the bulk of the disruption, happened within 10 years. Um, yeah, and this is more than 100 years ago. And the more interesting thing is not that it happened within 10 years. Um, in that decade, basically in the, the decade of the 1910s, we fought, you know, World War I, right? We fought one of the meanest influenza pandemics in history, um, and so on and so on, right? There were no roads. There, were, there was no gasoline infrastructure. So despite all of that, or maybe because of that, the disruption, the bulk, still happened within 10 years. Um, and yeah. Yeah, and that, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And so do you, do you think that, um, also saw that you, you mentioned that the, these S-curves that are happening in technology, they're actually starting to happen faster as, as time goes by. Do you think that the electric vehicle transformation will actually happen faster than the, than the move from horses to internal combustion? Yeah, so I think that, you know, I've, I've been predicting that the bulk of this disruption, of the EV disruption, is going to take place in the 2020s. So by 2030, it's pretty much over for internal combustion engine automobiles, over, right? Um, you know, and the first time that I said that was, you know, in 2010, uh, that, uh, you know, gasoline vehicles would be obsolete by 2030. And that sounded like an insane mm. prediction. Um, and then in 2014, I wrote Clean Disruption. Uh, and even with new data, I came up with pretty much the idea that by 2030, it would be pretty much over. So the bulk of this disruption is taking place exactly as I predicted, um, you know, plus or minus a year or two here and there. But I mean, you know, the the, the there is um, you know, there are hundreds of years of disruption history mm. that essentially taught me how this would happen um, and why S-curves are not intuitive. Um, you know, over the years, we've seen, uh, we've studied disruptions in anything from um, insulin to cameras to corn to nails and coal, car tires or cars. Disruptions always happen as an S-curve and quickly. Mm. So we've seen 10, 15 year disruptions happen, you know, in hundreds of uh, products along, uh, you know, throughout history. It never ever happens as a straight line. That's what I call the linear mirage. Mm. And why is it so hard to predict? We can talk about that, right? But, um, you know, this example of, you know, the EV disruption, is a case in point, right? Um, throughout most of the 2010s, uh, EVs have been making incredible uh, progress in terms of cost and capabilities. But up until 2020, um, you know, adoption was under two or three percent, right, globally. So most of the mainstream uh, basically said, "Hey, it's going slowly. Not going to happen anytime soon." not until the 2040s or 50s, because they make linear mm. predictions, right? Um, most incumbents mostly ignore the new possibilities. 
And then the system ruptures, uh, the existing system that had been stable for a long time. And in the case of ICE vehicles, it had been more or less stable for about 100 years. Then it ruptures. And EVs ruptured ICEVs around 2020. Why? Because by 2020, you could buy um, a 200 plus mile EV, which is a superior product um, for less than the cost of a new internal combustion engine automobile. So at that point, basically it says that half the market can shift to the new system immediately. And that's when the, um, the system ruptures. And when the system ruptures, all the things, all the brakes <clears throat> that were holding the system in place, you know, from regulation to politics to, you know, infrastructure, essentially loosen up, mm. right? Um, you know, for a long time, I was told the oil companies are not gonna let it happen. The car companies are not gonna let it happen. But guess what? They were powerless uh, once the system ruptures. Um, and then at that point, when it ruptures, it just explodes along this S-curve adoption. And pretty soon the new has 50% and boom, it's over. Yeah. You know, it, 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 soon after that, it's 80 and then that's it. It's over for the incumbents. Yeah, it really seems like we're, we're getting into the meaty part of the S-curve now around the world we've seen in in china in 2022 something like 25 percent of all vehicles sold were electric and china is the largest uh largest car market in the world with 27 million cars sold a annually so from the um from the ice vehicle manufacturers perspective that's 25 percent of their market gone so we see companies like toyota um the largest largest car manufacturer in the world selling 10 million cars a year, um, only 0.2% of their uh, production is electric. So all these consumers that are moving to electric um, in China and also in, in Germany and, and the UK, that in December they had rates of 33% uptake. So companies like Toyota just have nothing to, to offer those, those customers anymore. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I just came back from Shanghai and what I saw was amazing. I mean, just the sheer quality for the cost um, of the EVs that Chinese automakers are producing is just, you know, um, just stunning. Um, and also there are so many uh, automakers in China that are achieving scale um, that... Uh, yeah, I mean, this year, um, you know, EVs may well achieve 40 to 50% this year, meaning 2023. Um, wow, in, in China. Yes, yes. So, wow. Yeah, so, so look, what's happening, uh, the, so the, there are several dynamics, right, that are happening, um, not just in China, but in, in um, you know, the, the largest car markets in the world. So um, the idea that there was, uh, you know, a natural demand for cars, uh, that, you know, natural demand, quote unquote, is a constant of the universe, right? Like Avogadro's number or the yeah. speed of light. You know what I mean? It turns out that it's a variable. 
Um, so in all markets and major markets, um, you know, new car sales has essentially peaked. Um, and it has been the case also in China. So uh, over the last year, new car sales in China ha ha has been like in the 16 plus million range, right? Um, and just like, you know, it, it has dropped in Europe and, and in the US and a lot of mainstream analysts say and think that it's going to come back. It's not going to come back, mm. right? So, so, you know, there are several dynamics. One, the total market uh, for passenger vehicles is going down at the same time that the number of EVs also is going up exponentially. So this year, the car passenger, uh, uh, the manufacturer association of China uh, says that they expect about 8 million new energy vehicles. Um, and, you know, other sources say that the total number of vehicles sold in China this year is going to be a little bit more than 16 million, right? Mm. Which means 50%. Now, if the total number of vehicles goes up by a bit, I don't know, right? But, but whatever it is, it's going to be 40 to 50% uh, in 2023 or 2024. Um, and, you know, basically, who could have predicted that that was going to happen as soon as 2023, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I did. So, um, <laughs> that, yeah, that, that was rhetorical. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, and what's happening also in China is that, um, as you probably have seen read elsewhere, is that um, they are surpassing uh, both Japan and Germany as the largest car exporters in the world. Hmm. So they should be by probably the end of this year or maybe 2024, the largest uh, exporter of cars in the world. And so these two dynamics, if you put them together, it means that there's a whole number of companies in China that are improving their um, you know, manufacturing costs uh, and also their capabilities at exponential rates. Um, so that is going to accelerate both adoption within China and also adoption in other markets in mm. which automakers penetrate. And oh, um, the other thing is that um, because most Western um, or Japanese automakers don't have EVs, um, you know, in the market, not at scale anyway, they are losing uh, market share in China super fast, right? Mm. So, yeah, so what you're going to see over the next few years is most, um, you know, foreign automakers being pushed out of the, not Tesla, but most other automakers pushed out of the Chinese markets just because of economic reasons, just because they don't have products um, at the right cost and capability for the Chinese markets. Um, so a lot of things are happening in China. Yeah, and it all seems to be compounding. And uh, China is, well, planning to introduce its 6B pollution standard. Uh, it's, it's supposed to come in in July this year, but it, it may get pushed back. I think there's a fair bit of pressure from the, the, uh, you, the dealership um, groups to to push back the 6b standard but but yeah i was reading that um 
that you know Japanese the Japanese manufacturers are down 30% in the first two months of of 2023 in the Chinese market. I know GM is also really struggling at the moment in in the China market. Volkswagen, I think 50% of their global sales are in China. Um, so yeah, it's it's fascinating. I take it you you mentioned you come back from Shanghai. You're at the Shanghai Auto Show. I was. I was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I and, wanted to I wanted to ask yeah. was there I, I heard that the Shanghai Auto Show Auto Show was dominated by electric vehicles. Um, and totally. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Totally. So, um, you know, I went. I walked pretty much the whole show, uh, and it it was you know essentially uh, an EV show, not mm. because you know it was an EV show, but because that's what's selling, right? Um, and if you went to a booth with um, ICE vehicles, there was nobody there. So, hmm. I mean, it, you, you know, I mean, the, the cost and capabilities of Chinese electric vehicles is stunning. You've got to go to China to experience, um, you know, the quality of these EVs. Um, and, you know, I, I took out one for a test drive and it was, you know, it was... I would say 90, 95% of the quality of a Tesla for half the cost, wow. right? Um, which, yeah, it, it is wow, right? Um, so yeah, you can't compete. And uh, in, in this is happening again for purely economic reasons, right? Uh, these are just superior cars for less cost. Um, mm. I mean, there was a BYD car called the Seagull, um, you know, and this is another one of, you know, my insane predictions from, um, you know, clean disruption in 2014. I said that by 2025, the market will offer a $12,000 EV with 200 plus mile range, right? Um, and, you know, you can't believe how much pushback I got for that. Um, look at the Seagull, the BYD Seagull, which is a you know, 305 kilometer um, range car for less than $11,000, hmm. $11,000, right? Um, and, you know, it, I think that the BYD Seagull is, you know, the Ford Model T of electric vehicles. I think that BYD is going to sell as many Seagulls as they can possibly manufacture, um, you know, and the... 400 kilometer Seagull is just, you know, a couple of thousand dollars more. So, I mean, it's pretty much over. Look, the Seagull is cheaper. A new EV with 200 mile range is now cheaper than used internal combustion engine mm. vehicles, right? Incredible. What does that do to the economics of gas vehicles? It's just, I mean, um, you know, within two, three years, you know, it, it's going to get ugly for automakers that don't, that can't match the cost and quality of Chinese automakers. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask as well, how did the Shanghai Auto Show compare to uh, auto shows that you've been to recently in, say, the US or Europe? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for example, I went to the Los Angeles Auto Show. Um, was it December of 2022? Um, 
And I mean, frankly, it was pathetic, right? Um, you know, there were a handful of electric vehicles. Most, most of them were expensive. Many of them were not even for sale, right? Um, I mean, they were showing, I mean, Toyota, my God, they were showing, um, you know, a 10 or 12 year old hybrid um, as their, you know, main product, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it was, I mean, like EVs were kind of token in that auto show. Um, as if, you know, basically it was still um, a token kind of market. But in, in, in Shanghai, EVs were dominant. Um, and, and it was just amazing. And of course, this was, I don't know how many times, five, six times larger than the show in, um, um, in, in Los Angeles. I mean, I walked the LA show, I don't know, in a few hours. And it took me two full days to walk just walk the um, the show in Shanghai. Um, so yeah, I mean, it doesn't even compare um, to what I've seen in, in the US. Wow. So, um, so yeah, so on the on this um, on this phase shift that we're seeing to, to electric vehicles, what are the what are the technology convergences that are that are coming together to enable this, this transformation? And you, you mentioned there's kind of two there's two parts to the electric vehicle uh, revolution. There's the the EV part, and then there's the autonomous driving part. So, could you take us through some of the, the various technologies that that have really um, accelerated in recent years that that are enabling this? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at three technologies or sets of technologies, one is autonomous, um, two electric and three, on-demand transportation. Um, So we're seeing the on-demand transportation now, Uber, DD, Lyft, and so on. It's been happening for, you know, more than 10 years, right? Uber was started in um, 2009. So it's been, you know, it's well along the way. Um, In parallel to that, we're seeing the electric vehicle disruption. and this is phase one in the sense that, um, you know, the way that most analysts and most, you know, policymakers see um, the EV disruption is as a quote unquote transition, um, essentially as a cleaner caterpillar in the sense that they see it as a one to one substitution in which, you know, you used to have a gasoline vehicle, you sell it, you buy an EV and all, all is good, right? Nothing else uh, changes. But that's not the way disruption happens. And that's not the way this disruption happens. Um, so we're seeing this phase one, which is great. But the, the day that we get um, level four autonomous technology uh, ready and approved by regulators, when that converges with on-demand and um, you know, electric transportation um, will get what we call transportation as a service or TAS. Some call it robotaxi. Um, essentially, when that happens, the cost per mile of transportation is going to drop by anywhere from 10 to 20x, right? 10 to 20 times. Um, so, you know, every time we've seen a 10x cost and capability improvement, we've seen 
a disruption in a quick one, right? So in this case, the cost per mile of TAS is going to be, like I said, 10 to 20 times cheaper than the cost of uh, transportation, any form of individual ownership uh, of transportation. So, um, you know, uh, basically ICE vehicles, gone. Mm. Gone the day that level four is ready and approved. Why? Because the cost per mile of TAS is going to be not just cheaper um, than anything uh, on the market. It's going to be cheaper than the cost of gasoline. So think about that. The whole total cost of buying a car, maintaining a car, insuring a car, and so on and so forth. All of that divided by the number of miles, right, cost per mile, is going to be lower, a lot lower than just the cost per mile of gasoline. Hmm. So even if gasoline automakers give away their cars, um, <laughs> that's still going to be a lot more expensive yeah. than the cost of transport as a service, right? So essentially, gasoline cars, gone, right? Trucks, cars, gone, gone because of transportation as a service, right? Um, and what about electric vehicles themselves? Well, it's going to be still, TAS is going to be 10x cheaper than the cost of an EV, of owning an EV. Um, so for most people who can barely pay their bills, it won't make any sense to own a car, any car, right? Um, and then on top of that, because autonomous technology is going to be far safer, um, you know, 10 plus times safer um, than human drivers, what is going to happen is that insuring a human driver is going to be cost prohibitive, hmm. right? So it's not just that it won't make any sense to own a car. I mean, it's going to be like, do I spend $50,000 over the next five years to own a car? Or do I pay $100 a month for a subscription to transportation as a service, mm. right? It, it makes no sense to pay 50 grand, right? For most of the population. But even those who can afford it will be priced out of the market by insurance prices. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, bits and pieces of this are already happening. I mean, look, um, Tesla's uh, uh, technology is far from full self-driving, but it's already nine times safer than human drivers, mm. right? So, of course, you know, level four um, uh, technology will be 10, then 20, then 100 times safer than a human driver, right? Um, and also, Tesla is offering insurance, right? See? Yeah, because I guess it's got, it's got all the data. So it exactly. knows, it knows um, what the chances are of an accident. It knows that its its technology can avoid accidents. Um, so exactly. it's going to offer. It's going to disrupt the insurance industry, really. Exactly, exactly. And so you have, even if the insurance industry, you know, doesn't want to do this, um, basically doesn't matter because you know this is information technology, and um, you know, car makers have the incentive to make cars that last a long time and are easy to maintain and um, don't crash and so on and so forth. And, 
they will be able to offer insurance at you know far below market rates because of course they have all the data yeah that's right and that's that's really in, that's a really interesting thing that um we wrote a, a couple of stories about this last week but um but during tesla's q1 earnings call musk um actually said that tesla could essentially sell their cars at at zero margin and then um still make like the long-term revenue off subscription um for fsd as well as i guess they, they've got revenue streams from from supercharging etc and he was he was basically comparing it to the the traditional automotive industry business model which is um, sell the car on slim margins and then make money off servicing and, and spare parts over the over the long run and you've got companies like toyota i think last year toyota's average margin per vehicle was around a thousand us dollars um, but then they make their money on the spare parts um, and the servicing over the lifetime of, of the vehicle. Now, with that business model, there's really no incentive to, to build cars that last a really long time. Whereas with, with Tesla's model, the, the, the longer the car, the more reliable the car, the longer that, that revenue stream is coming. That's right. And, you know, as is, I mean, EVs are, uh, you know, basically a superior technology and they last 500,000 miles and mm. they barely need any maintenance. Uh, and Tesla has already announced the million mile car. So their incentive uh, is to produce cars that last longer and don't need any maintenance. Um, I mean, these things are computers on wheels. I mean, I've seen a lot of the criticism that uh, Tesla got you know, over the last couple of weeks, uh, because they have chosen to, um, you know, go for, uh, you know, basically scale rather than margins in the short term. And I tell you, um, the criticism makes no sense to me. Um, EVs are computers on wheels, right? I mean, I think I was the first one who said that back in 2014. These are computers on wheels. Um, and you know, if you look at uh, essentially the history of computing, only two or three operating systems make it in any market, right? So we have iOS and Android and Linux. We have Windows and Mac and so on and so forth, right? So if you want to dominate, I mean, you have to believe that, of course, this is a computer on wheels, right? And some people don't see it that way. Um, but some people don't see reality as is, right? Um, so if you want to dominate the you know, EV disruption, um, essentially you have to have the scale so that your operating system can hit critical mass mm. and only two or three are gonna survive. So how do you uh, improve your operating system? You know, one is, of course, with the scale of data and so on and so forth. Um, and the other one is investing massively uh, in autonomous technology. Right. Mm. So um, those are the keys. And in the meantime, because we're still in phase one, you have to push costs down um, and you can only do that with scale. I mean, costs of hardware. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so we've seen, for instance, that 
uh, I think uh, Tesla has said that the cost of making uh, the Model 3 has come down by, what, 30% over the last few years. Um, X-Bank just in China just said that um, they expect the cost of uh, manufacturing to come down another 20, 30% over the next, uh, by the end of 2024. Mm -hmm. That is the economics of the EV industry. So this is a disruption from above. You know, you started with $100,000 EVs uh, 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Um, and that was, you know, the lowest cost EV that you could make. And now you're seeing the Seagull at ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000, right? So you have to keep pushing down the costs. And most of that's going to come from manufacturing scale. Um, if not, you're out. Um, so those who are pursuing short-term profits at the expense of, you know, medium-term scale, are, you know, basically are... Um, don't understand the dynamics of the market. Yeah, I think it's definitely the right strategy for for Tesla. And I mean, during their investor day, they also announced that um, they'll be cutting their their manufacturing costs by fifty percent within their third generation platform. And I think Morgan Stanley estimates their current costs at around thirty nine thousand dollars US per per vehicle. So that would their next gen vehicle, their 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 the cost of production per vehicle for their third gen will be possibly under 20,000 US. Yes, um, it, it it better be, right? Otherwise, yeah. they won't be able to compete. I mean, yeah. look, the, 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 the cost and quality that is coming out of China is, you know, unbelievable. Um, mm -hmm. You gotta go there to, to see it, right? And to feel it and, uh, you got to take, you know, test drives. I mean, it, it's the same thing that I used to say, you know, 10 years ago to automakers. You should, right? I mean, you don't have to believe anything I say. Go and drive a Tesla Model S um, <laughs> and convince yourself, right? Take it apart and convince yourself that this is disruptive to anything that you produce. Um, and basically, they're going to eat you within the next 10 years. And mm. sure enough, um, but the same thing is happening again, and it's happening out of China, right? They're taking mm. this to the next level. And really, I mean, I don't see anybody outside China today with the capability to compete with Chinese automakers. It's just, you know, stunning. Yeah. And so the, yeah, you, with, with the fact that these EVs are lasting kind of four to five times longer than, than ICE vehicles, as you say, EVs, you know, doing 500,000 miles compared to 140,000 for a, for an ICE vehicle. I mean, that's, that means p people are going to be buying vehicles a lot less often. So would, would that essentially cut the, the global vehicle market by a factor of four or five? Yes, I mean, and that's beginning to happen. Um, you know, the so-called quote-unquote natural demand in, you know, car markets is going down and it already peaked. Mm. And part of the reason, and so yeah, lifestyle changes. We work more from home and um, shop from home and so on. But a lot of cars are being bought by fleets, you know, Uber and DD and Lyft and, and Uber Eats and so on. Um, and whereas uh, personally, we drive 10, 12,000 miles per year, um, 
fleets drive 100,000 miles per year. So, you know, um, essentially over five years, a fleet would need one electric vehicle that goes 500,000 miles or three gasoline vehicles. So, in fact, no matter how you see this, um, EVs are already cheaper than internal combustion engine vehicles on a per mile basis, right? Mm. So, um, so yeah, 500,000 miles, no maintenance. Uh, it means that, you know, you need one EV over five years or three petrol cars, right? Um, and soon enough, you're going to see the million mile EVs. And what that means is that over 10 years, you're going to need just one EV or 10 petrol cars, yeah, right? Wow. So, yeah, either way, it's pretty much over for internal combustion engine, right? Incredible. Um, and I guess the, the autonomous driving is going to compound that further. So, I mean, the, the current global vehicle market's between 70 and 80 million. What, what is your prediction for, for 2030? What do you think the size of the global car market's going to be by then? Yeah, so once we have um, transportation as a service, so on-demand, autonomous and electric, uh, the size of the market should go down by at least 75% or 80%. Um, and that is the size that you need to serve, I mean, essentially all the miles that we drive today. And you can add 50% more, right? So it's not just what we drive today, but you add 50% more because, look, miles are going to be cheaper, so we're going to you know, um, basically use transportation more. Um, so yeah, um, it basically, it's going to go down by 75, 80%. Boom. Wow. wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and then what's, I mean, what's that going to do to, to geopolitics around the world? At, at the moment, we have a highly centralized uh, transport energy supply chain where just a handful of, of oil companies basically control the world's uh, transport energy um, and we're moving towards this decentralization which which as you say the convergence of um, of renewable of renewable energy what what is this transformation going to do uh, geopolitically around the world well everything is going to change um, you know and, and it's 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 going to happen the exact opposite that we saw in the early 20th century right so in the 20th century, um, we saw increased centralization. So the car um, essentially meant that, you know, we needed petroleum, which is only available in a few places around the world. The car um, itself needed uh, scale economies. Oil needed scale economies. Coal, gas, you know, industrial, everything needed scale economies. They were all based on you know, scarce resources that are not available everywhere. So um, everything in the 20th century changed war, changed geopolitics, changed because of the car, right? And electricity and, and so on and so forth. What we're going to see over the next, you know, starting in the 2030s is the total opposite. So um, the new technologies that are disrupting everything, but especially, you know, what I have studied the most, which is the five foundational sectors of the economy, um, 
are going to be based on super abundant, really low cost, localized, distributed production. So in uh, energy production, we're going to see essentially solar, wind, and batteries. Um, and, you know, again, the, the solar, wind, and battery disruption is not going to be a clean version of today's system. It's not a cleaner caterpillar. It's going to have, you know, the new system is going to be dramatically different. It's going to be super local, and it's going to have massively different properties. Um, transportation as a service in transportation, precision fermentation in food, and so on and so forth, right? All of these technologies are based on the idea that we're going to have global design and development and local production. Um, and so let me summarize it this way. Um, each one of these sectors um, essentially is trending to a near zero cost distributed localized negative carbon production system. Hmm. Um, all of them are going through phase change disruptions and transformation at the same time in the 2020s. And this is why we are, um, you know, we're seeing in the 2020s um, such dysfunction, right? Such instability around the world. And many can't understand all the instability, right? Um, it's it's and, almost like the death, the death throes of the, of the fossil fuel industry. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it's all collapsing at the same time. I mean, we've already seen peak um, petroleum. We've seen peak um, coal. Um, it basically, we're seeing peak livestock. We're seeing, you know, peak gas over the next uh, few years. Um, and essentially, the new system is going to be one of superabundant and costs are trending to zero. So energy costs will trend to zero. Transportation costs trending to zero. Food costs trending to zero. Labor costs trending to zero. Intelligence costs trending to zero. Mm -hmm. Everything is going to change around the world, right? Um, so it's going to be the whole flip side of what we saw in the 20th century. Um, and so... I mean, there are really great changes for humanity because of this, but our institutions, our governance systems are not prepared for what is happening, right? Um, cities are going to change. Politics are going to change. Shipping. I mean, think about shipping. Two-thirds of all shipping is the things that I just mentioned, right? Coal, gas, petroleum, mm. livestock corn and whatever, right? Two thirds. If I'm right, two thirds of world shipping is going to disappear wow. within 10 years, right? So um, again, this is not a clean caterpillar. This is a totally new butterfly uh, in terms of the system um, that we're going to need to put together uh, to benefit humanity. It's, it's such an exciting future. Um... Yeah, it's truly, truly inspiring to hear to hear that um, the way you, you you talk about that. Um, and yeah, there's also going to be like obviously massive um, benefits with 
energy security. Countries are going to have less reason to, to go to war over um, fossil fuel supply chains, etc. Et so, yeah, as you say, it's going to just have profound impact on, on the world. Um, I just had one more one more question uh, before we wrap it up, but um, CATL recently announced that they have developed a 500 watt hour um, battery, uh, which will go into production this year, which is is almost double the the energy density of the current Tesla batteries, and and many people are saying that this this could enable. Uh, the electrification of uh, passenger aircraft. So, I wanted to get your thoughts on on what the future of um, of aviation is with with electrification. Yeah. So, so let let me dispel one myth first, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, one myth is that we're going to have to go to solve climate. We're going to have to. Every industry has to go to net zero. Right. Um, But what we have found is that that is not necessarily the case. What we have found is that um, just with, you know, eight or nine technologies that will disrupt uh, three sectors, energy, transportation and food can um, essentially reduce 90 percent of emissions by 2035. And this is going to happen for purely economic reasons, right? And, um, you know, we haven't talked about the food disruption, but it's going to be a profoundly um, uh, I mean, transformational disruption that is going to allow us to get back to one and a half billion hectares that are dedicated to livestock production today, right? Hmm. And wow. when we do that, then a lot of that land that is actually emitting right uh, greenhouse gases can turn around and start you know basically absorbing carbon um, you know and greenhouse gases. So what we see is that we can achieve net zero uh, by 2040 with technologies that we already have, no miracles needed, no breakthroughs needed, um, with essentially these three disruptions. Right now. That doesn't mean that we should not, you know, uh, uh, do everything we can to electrify, um, you know, aviation, for instance. So um, what I see, and so that's the longer kind of, you know, conversation that we don't necessarily need to go to net zero in everything. There are several um, uh, industries, aviation being one of them, in which it makes sense for us to invest massively um, in batteries, for instance, right? That will allow us to electrify the um, long distance aviation. So I do see that by 2030, um, we're going to electrify um, essentially aviation under 800 miles, right? Um, Mm -hmm. On the path that we already have, we should be able to electrify, um, you know, essentially anything under uh, 800 miles by 2030. Um, so beyond that, all, most most domestic flights. Yes, most domestic flights, um, and you know, in you know, in in Europe, I mean, most domestic, most you know, within European flights, 
will be able to be electrified. Um, most regional flights will be electrified. Um, you know, the, 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 the areas that the, you know, intercity flights that are most popular, right? Sydney to Melbourne, you know, San Francisco to, um, to Los Angeles, Boston to New York, Paris to London, we'll be able to electrify all of those, right? Mm. So we'll be along, well along the way to electrifying most of the industry. But um, yeah, I, don't, I, I still don't see uh, that by 2030, we'll be able to electrify, you know, the you know, Sydney to San Francisco flights, right? Mm. Um, and nor, I mean, again, it doesn't mean that we should not make the effort. We should, uh, but, you know, we should double down on R&D to really come up with, um, uh, you know, batteries that can make those long distance um, flights basically fully electric, right? Mm. Um, instead of, you know, putting money into, um, I don't know, clean whatever, clean whatever and clean whatever. You know what I mean, right? Biofuels, clean biofuels, yeah. clean coal, things that are making, are well-intended, but are making things worse, right? Um, biomass and, and so on and so forth. So um, again, we can decarbonize 100% of the economy by 2040 with technologies that we have, right? Um, uh, and and um, so, yeah, we should make the effort to uh, go to net zero and a lot of other industries, but we don't have to. There are some industries that are going to be really hard to decarbonize. So we need to go back to R&D only for those industries. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. That's yeah. It's fascinating. Um, it's, yeah. It's really, really exciting. And um, I'm sure we could we could talk about this for hours, but we uh, unfortunately we have to we have to wrap it up there. So Tony Sieber, thank you very much for a really fascinating discussion today. And um, just for our listeners uh, who'd like to to hear more of um, Tony's research, I, I highly recommend uh, Tony's recent YouTube series called The Great Transformation. I think it's a five-part five part series. Um, so yeah, go and check that out. And Tony also has a number of books on um, yeah cost curves and the convergence of technology. So yeah, thanks again, Tony. It's been been great to chat. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was uh, Tony Sieber from Stanford University talking to Daniel Bleakley. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, Giles. Yeah, it was a really fascinating fascinating conversation. It's really interesting because we um, we were at the Smart Energy Conference in Sydney last week, and we heard from a couple of people who had been to Shanghai and just sort of talked about this sort of huge change that was upon us. And Tony Sieber seems to be saying the same thing. You know, if we think about the electric vehicle um revolution as we we can probably see it you know we focused on tesla and that was mostly about what they did in the us and we've been fascinated by what's happened in norway and europe but the big game now seems to be in china where things are happening just so quickly yeah that's right it's it's really phenomenal the speed of change now and and even, even myself after watching the electric vehicle transition for a number of years i'm i'm surprised every week at how quickly things are moving and uh yeah, we had another story this week from um, uh, about the the CEO of Li Auto, who's also predicting that uh, EV market share in China 
will hit 80% by the end of 2025. So yeah, it's just a phenomenal pace of, of transformation over there. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, all the different things that are happening in China is one, the car makers are moving towards it so quickly. Two, they're producing low cost EVs. Three, they're making these extraordinary developments of battery technology, which um, I think, uh, I can't remember whether we mentioned on the last podcast, but a couple of weeks ago, you had about from BYD and their new battery with, you know, sort of double the energy density of what was previously um, rolled out in commercial production. So it's really quite fascinating to put that 80% market share in, in context. I mean, it is a huge market. And in Australia, we think we're doing really well because we've just got to 8% yeah. in 2023. So that's sort of 10 times. And, you know, Canberra, good good for it, is actually 20% and just over 20% in April. And, and that's great. But geez, 80% in 2025 in China, you're kind of looking at the death of the fossil fuel car market, aren't you? You are. It's it's a total collapse, and we we have to pat ourselves on the back a little bit because eight uh, percent in April is up from one percent in April twenty twenty two. So it is an eightfold increase um, in in the uptake rate. So I don't think we'll maintain that. But if, say if we did, then we'd be at eighty percent next year as well. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna quibble with that eight that eightfold increase because I think the April last year data may not have included Tesla, which only just joined the FCA oh, okay. data. I think in in April, Matt. But still, it's at least a fourfold increase. Yeah. With the hidden te Tesla numbers, um, or they were hidden. But it's also fascinating when you talk. We just sort of mentioned the death of the fossil fuel car industry, but the car industry itself, even going electric, is up for big change because what Tony Sieber says about the plunge in car sales is really interesting too. Like you've got cars which last longer um, and are autonomous, so they're used more. So in theory, at least, we don't need as many on the roads because they're being used sort of, you know, 12, 15, 18 hours a day. Um, that's a big, that's a bit of a, um, a yeah, I was going to sort of try and think of a word, an expression without swearing, but um, <laughs> a, 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 a bit of a mind blow to the, uh, to the existing car makers. It is. That's right. And and what Tony's uh, what Tony's talking about is is this convergence of technologies where um, it just changes the game completely. So I really like the analogy Tony gives about um, people think people are thinking about this and and a lot of technology changes as a as a cleaner caterpillar. So you start with the caterpillar. Um, and then you go through the transition and what comes out the other side well it's actually a, a butterfly it's not a it's not a cleaner caterpillar it's not a it's not a one is to one transition because of the the different things that that each technology brings um, brings to that uh, phase shift so one of the one of the major things here is uh, as Tony points out is that electric vehicles are getting close to around 500,000 miles um, over the lifetime of the vehicle, which is you know 800,000 kilometers, compared to to 125,000 miles for uh, for an ICE vehicle, so that's that's almost a four a four x uh, increase in the longevity of a vehicle. So so that what, what does that mean? Well, that that means that people don't need to buy cars as often, and and as Tony said during the interview, he's he's predicting a 75 percent um, decrease in the annual global car market by by 2030, and I'm not sure if, if many people are anticipating that. I don't think many people are, and particularly not new car dealers. Um, <laughs> although they may have, <laughs> they may have something to do over the next few years. Although their business has largely depend on sort of warranty and maintenance, and um, that's not such a big thing anymore. 
um, with electric vehicles, which was interesting. We we did a story this week, or you did a story this week, about um, one of the major fleet operators in Australia talking about how keen businesses were to go electric if they could actually find a vehicle, um, how keen the fleet operators are actually keen to go electric because they seem to be making more money out of it. And one of the reasons they're making more money out of it is that these things sell for more, but the cost less to run. Yeah, that's right. So this, we did a story um, on a report uh, from Fleet Partners, who's a who's a large um, fleet fleet management organisation that that operates in the Australian and New Zealand market. And uh, yeah, they said during the the, um, the 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 first the first half, or I think that year ending in March, that that half of the year, um, there was a seventeen percent. Uh, 17% of all of their their um, business business writings were electric, but they're saying that their order pipeline is over 50% of EVs and, and hybrids. So it seems that the fleets are, are, are moving even faster than the passenger cars. And one of the things that um, that company mentioned was that in New Zealand, it's already moving really, really quickly. So 50% already in New Zealand, um, much lower in Australia, and they credit New Zealand uptake with the fact that they've got these fuel efficiency um, policies in place now. Um, that's a big question for Australia. We've talked about having fuel efficiency standards. The government has committed to it. It's now decided to do an extra consultation. Chris Bowen um, talked to the Driven exclusively last week, saying the reason for this extra consultation was to get the design right. But um, I think it's important to for everyone out there to actually sort of write in and put their submissions in. People might not know the details of how to implement a fuel efficiency, fuel efficiency policy, but I think the more people that can actually sort of express their voice to have really biting and good standards and not soft standards that end up kicking the can down the road, I think that's going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know that uh, companies like Toyota will be putting in submissions to to water down the standards as they've, they've had a track record of, of doing for, for many years. So it is really critical for, for people to, to um, make their voices heard and, and get their submissions in by, by the end of the month and, and really um, for the electric vehicle community in Australia to really push for um, the strongest standards possible. Yeah. And look, just to wrap up, um, we mentioned about the increased um, EV sales in Australia in April, um, 8%, um, 20% in the ACT. Um, we've got a couple more pricing events. There's more cars being rolled out in Australia now, more models, the MG4. Um, they've talked already about their longer range model. Now they've come out with the pricing for the shorter range model. Um, that's going to be around 44000 and something before on roads, which would just about make it the lowest cost EV in Australia. We'd probably have to check that, but it, it's right down there and it's good to have another EV below 50,000. And Ford, the venerable, well, I guess you can call it, well, one of the legacy car makers, um, is finally rolling out its first electric vehicle offering in Australia with the Mustang Mach-E. Um, it's been on sale in the US for well over a year, probably two years now, but um, it's going to be offered in Australia for $80,000. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that sort of compares with um, with Tesla and the Polestars and the um, the uh, Ionic Six and things like that. All very smart sort of passenger sedans that can that can go like the clappers. Um, I think it will come down to personal choice, but um, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's great to see more models coming to Australia, and I I think this is only the beginning. I think um, yeah, we're going to see a lot more models coming to Australia now, and um, especially if the government can introduce these 
these standards, I think it's all just going to accelerate from here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and volumes will improve too. I mean, we've heard this week from Cooper and also from Kia just sort of saying that they're overwhelmed by the orders. They can't match the orders. And that's been pretty much the case um, um, for the last sort of four or five years. And Tesla 2 Model Y rear-wheel drive um, orders are, um, are now booked out for the next quarter. So... Um, so we need more models coming here. Daniel, um, thanks very much for the interview with Tony Sieber. That was really great, really interesting and good for you for getting hold of the Stanford University um, Futurologist. Um, thanks for everyone listening out there. Thanks, of course, to NRMA for sponsoring this series um, with The Driven. And um, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another episode of The Driven Podcast. Bye for now. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by the NRMA, who are leading the charge in helping Australians transition to electric vehicles. The NRMA offers advice, online communities and EV loans to help drivers at every stage of their electric vehicle journey. And with their ever-expanding regional fast charging network, the NRMA is committed to ensuring all communities remain connected.